You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Good evening and welcome to Talk of the Bay. My name's Rick Cleffel. I'm your host tonight. We're going to be speaking with Diana Paxton, Paxton in just a mo- Paxton in just a moment. Thank you for joining me on Talk of the Bay. Diana L. Paxton is a writer of fantasy living in the literary household called Greyhaven in Berkeley, California. She has sold over 70 short stories, many of them to anthologies such as Sword and Sorcery series, Elf Fantastic, Wizard Fantastic, and any more. She's the author of The Chronicles of Westria. She's the inheritor of the Marion Zimmer Bradley's uh, Mists of Avalon series, and she's a member and high... elder of the local pagan church. Thank you for joining me, Diana. I'm glad to be here. Diana, I'd like for you to tell me the first time that you... Two, I, I like to go with two firsts for you. <laughs> the first time that you thought about religion in a manner that would lead you to the pagan church and your first experience of fantasy that led you to be, want to become a writer, were those two in any way connected? No. Uh, My mother named me Diana. And when I found out that Diana was a pagan goddess, I started reading mythology as a little girl. And I read all the mythology that I could find. And like many people who became pagan when they realized it was an option, uh, I spent a lot of time wandering around uh, in nature. And I would climb to the... I grew up in Southern California, and our house had a flat roof. And I would climb to the roof and sit and look at the moon. And uh, if you read Margot Adler's um, Drawing Down the Moon, mm-hmm. where she interviewed a lot of, of pagan leaders, uh, you find again and again people saying that they sort of instinctively wanted to practice and instinctively they would come up with little ritual actions as children. Um, I would do, although in my case some of it may have been the result of reading archaeology books too young, but if I found a dead mouse, I'd do a funeral for it and little ritual things. So uh, I had that instinct, and uh, as for fantasy... I didn't actually run into as much fantasy as one might expect. I always wanted to be a writer, but that started when I was, as soon as I was exposed to stories of any kind. And I would tell myself stories to put myself to sleep when I was five and six and seven, and narr- dictate them to my mother and then illustrate them. So I always wanted to write. Uh, my first real encounter with fantasy was when I was in junior high and I went into the Santa Monica Public Library to uh, do research for a report. Well, of course, instead of actually going to the stacks, I went to the new acquisitions bin and sort of browsed along and there was a a book uh, with sword in the title. And I picked that up. It was a rather thin book because those were the days where 65,000 words was a novel. 
And I stood there and, and read it from cover to cover because if I sat down, I would have had to admit that I was reading the novel instead of doing my homework. Finished the book, realized I was late for dinner, shoved it back in the bin without making a proper note of the author or the title, and spent years trying to f- figure out what that book had been. It wasn't until I was in graduate school when I encountered somebody who was in the uh, Bay Area science fiction community in my Middle English class, and she had a pile of books, including something by C.S. Lewis on the the, uh, top. So we got into that conversation of, you read this sort of thing, too. And she said, well, there's a, there's a whole group of people, and, and they have meetings, and there's a party at the home of a local science fiction writer. Uh, on Friday, would you like to come? Sure, yes. Who Who is it? Poole Anderson. Well, I was familiar with some of his work, but she started listing titles, and she said, The Broken Sword. Wow. And I went, <laughs> wow, at last. Um and so I, I got involved in science fiction fandom. And the thing about The Broken Sword was that it, it, it had a profound effect on me because it was the first thing I had read that really conveyed what it would be like to have a completely different worldview. That's really an interesting observation. It, it's, I think, his first novel. Mm-hmm. And he was a, a second-generation Danish and had, in fact, had lived in Denmark for a while. He really knew his Norse literature, and he he does the so- sort of saga style as as the context for this. But he threw in elves and dwarves and gods and all kinds of things, and he was so successful at conveying what the world looked like to these people, mm-hmm. and it was a um, something that I resonated to. And so I was absolutely delighted to to actually real. Anderson was an extremely um, versatile writer. Mm -hmm. And the reason I hadn't realized before that this was the author of that book was that his next two or three things were in a completely different style. And, uh, And his science fiction also, he wrote several different kinds of science fiction. And so um, I had no idea. Uh, later on, he wrote some more things in the saga style that uh, were also extremely good. But in any case, I got involved in science fiction fandom, and uh, everybody... This was in 1965. Now, I remember Poole Anderson because mm-hmm. for me, he I know, you just told me something I didn't know. For me, he was primarily a science fiction writer. I didn't mm-hmm. know he had written fantasy. Oh, yeah. But what you said about that kind of uh, alternate worldview, that's a real aspect of yeah. science fiction as well. Well, good fantasy does that. Mm-hmm. Um, in 1965, if you had read The Lord of the Rings, you were part of a secret society. <laughs> uh, it, had, it had come out in a hardcover in the United States, and my college uh, English teacher, the, the head of the department, Elizabeth Pope, who was also a fantasy writer, mm-hmm. and uh, she would, when she saw somebody she thought particularly worthy, she would you know, say, you really ought to read Tolkien. And so uh, the American publishers had been so doubtful that 
it would sell well. That they never even bothered to get the copyright really fixed. <laughs> and science fiction fandom, which was then also fairly small, uh, every we all knew about it, and sort of would would eagerly share information and and squee a lot. Uh, Don Walheim, who later became the publisher of Daw Books, who had started out as a science fiction fan in the 30s. He wrote a famous story called Mimic, yeah, which he, was directed he, by Guillermo he, del Toro. He wrote, and, and but he went mostly into publishing. And, mm-hmm. and, of course, he was a Tolkien fan, and he knew the books had the potential to become big. And I believe what he said said. Uh, his about his motivations, he realized the copyright had not been registered, so he brought out a paperback edition from Ace of the Lord of the Rings. That would have been the one I read. Yeah, the one <laughs> with the um, oh, I forget the name of the artist. It was the same artist who did did um, Andre Norton's Witch World covers. Mm-hmm. The covers could have been better, but they could have been worse. The ones, the Valentine edition ones, were worse. Uh, but in any case. Uh, so it hit, it hit big, and suddenly Tolkien was going, but, 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 and, and the publishers were all going, but, 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 <laughs> and he quite cheerfully said, okay, I won't publish it anymore. Now you're going to bring out your paperback edition. The word is out. I did my job. And uh, so then the Valentine edition came out with the strange flamingos on the cover, and uh, I, I used to do illustrations for a fanzine, published by a, a local fan called Niekas. And when the first, the Ace edition came out, uh, none of us were happy with the covers, so I did draw- drawings for covers that were put out with the fanzine, and there's still some of those around in collections. Well, that's an absolutely fascinating history. <laughs> <laughs> you were into this early, so I, I'd like you to talk a little bit. At this point in time in your college postgraduate years, had you developed your religious beliefs further, or how how did that come about? I, I had an evolution rather than a conversion. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the science fiction, the local science fiction community, had uh, a number of people who were sort of incipient pagans, in that they they were really interested, but there was no organized anything. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it was. That the potential was there. Uh, this was also the group on which I drew to put together the first tournament of, of what became the Society for Creative Anachronism. Mm-hmm. And um, so oh, you're the crea- one of the creators of the Renaissance Fair, as, as no, we sort of know no, it. No, not, not actually. Um, that started quite independently in Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. That was what Mick Cage Baker, I think, just talks about some being part of that. Probably. Yeah. Um, but that was uh, Ron and Phyllis Patterson, mm-hmm. who started it in L.A. as a fundraiser for K- the, the Southern California version of KPFA. Mm-hmm. And and then gradually it realized that this was a really nifty thing. In Let me cover the yeah. SCA, and then I'll get to the fair. Uh, two of the guys in the local fan group, had uh, I, I was over at their house and I noticed they had shields hanging on the wall, I mean metal shields, <laughs> serious hardware, 
And I said, I was getting my master's degree in medieval literature at the time. So I said, wow, what are those? What do you do with them? Well, they were trying to figure out how to uh, do medieval fighting by doing medieval fighting, as opposed to looking at what scholars said. Mm-hmm. Coming out of academia, that was a, a, a mind-blowing notion. In the, the academic world, it's what one scholar says, another scholar said, a primary source back there somewhere in the Middle Ages said, maybe. Mm-hmm. And here were people going out and actually experimenting. Just now, trying to forge today, the steel. To, well, they didn't go that far. Mm-hmm. But today, experimental archaeology is a recognized discipline, but it wasn't in 1966. Mm-hmm. And I, I said, hmm, I bet that the form for sword and shield is not the same as fencing, which I had done. Mm-hmm. And I did illustrations for this fanzine. I said, Come over to my house and work out in my backyard, and I can, I'll make sketches so the next time I have to illustrate something about fantasy, I'll have it right. So they came over and, and worked out for a while, and I drew pictures. And when they had left, I thought, wow, this was so cool to actually see what it looked like. I know so many people in fandom or in, in graduate school who spend all, a lot of time trying to visualize what these things looked like. Mm-hmm. Wouldn't it be fun if we could like have a tournament in the backyard and people could actually see it? And then I thought, I'm supposed to be studying for my master's orals. <laughs> and I went in and I said to my roommates, um, I just had this knacky idea, please talk me out of it. And they went, oh, wow, that sounds really fun. Let's do it. <laughs> so I was stuck. But the uh, the guy who um, put out the fanzine let me use his mimeograph to run off a flyer, and we, it got distributed all to all of the, the colleges and universities around the Bay Area, and all sorts of people started turning up or calling who were interested. And about a week before the... Uh, First, this first tournament. Uh, two friends of the two guys who inspired the whole notion came, uh, moved out from back east. It turned out there had been five of the, these guys who had formed this little band of brothers and were trying to do medieval stuff. So they came into town, and my friends said, Oh, you're just in time for the tournament. <laughs> and um, these were. Um, Don Studebaker, a.k.a. John DeCleese, who was already a published writer, and um, Paul Edwin Zimmer, who was Marion Zimmer Bradley's younger brother. And uh, so they all came to the tournament, and we had about 50 people, and we had 12 guys who wanted to fight, and everything just fell into place. Uh, By the end of the day, I was going... Wow, it came off. What a wonderful story this will be to tell. And other people were saying, next time I'm going to do it this way. Next time I'm going to hit him like this. Next time I'm going to make a whatever. And I'm thinking, next time? What are they talking (laughs) about next time? So the group of people who came together that day became the core group that eventually founded the, the SCA. And I ended up as part of that group and so forth. And the, the two guys who had come out 
um, who had just arrived were major people in that. And um, I fell in love with Don, and a lot of marriages happened as a result of all of that. Anyway, they also were... From a party in your backyard It wasn't the a SCA. party. It was a tournament. A tournament. It was always a, a tournament. Mm-hmm. Uh, anyway, Don and Paul were already pagans. Mm-hmm. And uh, Marion Zimmer Bradley uh, had founded a ceremonial lodge based on the work of Dion Fortune, the, the English occultist mm-hmm. from the um, 30s and 40s. And uh, at that time, in fact, her the work inspired by the Order of the Golden Dawn in one way or another was just about the only magical literature available mm-hmm. that was credible anyway. So Marion had this group going, and Don and Paul were both already in it. And um, as we all got closer, they invited me to join. And the thing about... Diane Fortune's work was that she saw no problem that she believed in a truth beyond all the truths behind all the truths and that there were different ways to it and in her group they worked with paganism but they also worked with uh, esoteric Christianity mm. so, so it was it was many paths to the same yes. place so so it and Marion simultaneously practiced this kind of Christianity and paganism and so I was, um, I had become an Episcopalian at Mills College due to the uh, inspiration of, of a really brilliant uh, the chaplain, Dr. George Headley. And unfortunately, when I got out of college, I found that the um, particular connection that I was getting through when he was doing the service they apparently hadn't trained the rest of the Episcopal Church how to do this. Mm. And that was very disappointing. And it, it was all full of, of high ideals and so forth. But it wasn't getting me there. It wasn't giving me the connection. That relig- a truly religious the spir- experience. The connection with spiritual mm-hmm. experience. And the pagan stuff was. That was basically it. What What I wanted out of religion... The social consciousness was fine. I was all for that, and I had done a, a lot of that sort of thing in college. But you can do, you don't need a religion to do that. Mm-hmm. And what I needed was to plug in. You wanted so, to get back to the young you on the roof looking at the moon. Yeah, yeah. And um, so, in any case, uh, it was a very gradual thing for me, and for for a number of years, I did both. Now you were so you were married to uh, Paul. No, uh, Don. 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 Uh, talk about uh, becoming part of Marion Zimmer's uh, Bradley's family, and this kind of yeah. slow, slow-growing religion. That's a really interesting approach. Mm-hmm. So many people have this kind of want to have a seem to want to have an ecstatic, uh, you know, instant success. Mm-hmm. And I think that mm-hmm. the slow approach seems much more likely to reward a lasting. Well, it certainly commitment. has for me. <laughs> um, my husband had been unofficially adopted into Marion's family mm-hmm. when he was a teenager. So effectively, Marion was my sister-in-law. Mm-hmm. And a, a number of things happened during... Um, the 70s, 
When did she write the the Miss Well, I'll get to that. Okay. And, and for me, after I had um, I married Don in '68. Uh, in gee, it wasn't that much longer, was it? Uh, in '71, I realized that the penny finally dropped, and I realized that real people wrote books that real people like to read, specifically Marion. Mm-hmm. I had taken a creative writing class in college, which effectively discouraged me from writing because they wanted <laughs> us to do social realism. Mm-hmm. And the kitchen window epiphany. Yeah, well, um, <laughs> the kind of story that they sometimes have in The New Yorker, mm-hmm. which are beautifully written descriptions and nothing happens, mm-hmm. uh, usually with rather depressing people. Right. And, you know, that wasn't what I was after in literature. Anyway, so in 1971, I was working at the as a secretary at the YMCA, and I finished would finish my work in two-thirds of the day and sit there with an electronic typewriter, and I thought, I'm going to write something, and I'm going to finish it, unlike all the things that I had written and not finished. And... So that was when I seriously began writing. Hmm. And after a year, I had a novel. And I showed it to Marion, and she was willing to read it, bless her heart. And she read it, and she critiqued it. And I wiped my eyes, and I rewrote it. And we went through that a bit. Uh, so throughout the 70s, I was working on learning how to write. Uh-huh. And I was a member of Marion's group at the end of the 70s I actually finally started selling short stories and I had rewritten and revised and rewritten and revised and was nearing get, I was getting lots of really nice rejection letters mm-hmm. on the novels and in 78 I, one of the young women in the ceremonial group wanted a coming of age ceremony and uh, she asked me to put it together for her. Now, Marion had required everybody in the group to write some of the rituals, mm-hmm. and I had discovered that I could write rituals. So you're now you were you a member of the pagan church at that time? Did you consider yourself a member, or were you kind of still? Uh, on I the was outside? a member of the ceremonial lodge, mm-hmm. which did not require you to reject anything. Mm-hmm. Uh, the pagan movement. The only other thing around at that point was Nerubd, which is the new reformed Orthodox Order of the Golden Dawn, which had been came out of a, a couple of people who were taking a religious studies class at San Francisco State in the 60s. And I think in 1967, they had to do to write a ritual for the class they were doing. And they did, and they really liked it. <laughs> So they continued meeting. Mm-hmm. But this was the 60s, so that's why they gave it that name, mm-hmm. because we wouldn't want to take ourselves too seriously. The same kind of reasoning that produced the Society for Creative Anachronism. Mm-hmm. Let's you know not take ourselves too seriously here. Um, Nerugd that's a blessing. Is, Nerugd is still going, mm-hmm. and it, it has become a perfectly legitimate, regular Wiccan tradition. So some of the people who were in Marion's group were also in these this um, developing Wiccan, local Wiccan thing, because there weren't, as far as we knew, 
anybody from one of the Brit- British traditions with the proper lineage. Mm-hmm. Uh, everybody had to sort of figure it out as we went along. And, you know, Starhawk was doing the same thing. Who was Starhawk? Oh, okay. <laughs> Die. Yeah. Um, okay, this is a serious question? Yes, it is. Okay. I, I'm, um, I'm sorry, but... Starhawk wrote a book called The Spiral Dance. Mm-hmm. And uh, she had been trained by a guy named Victor Anderson who practiced what he called the fairy tradition, F-E-R-I, mm-hmm. which he'd gotten from various places and put together. He was quite an inspiring teacher. Uh, the spiral dance became one of the, um, I don't want to say seminal, I think conceptual is a much better term, mm-hmm. books of the neo-pagan movement. Mm. And Starhawk is, uh, I mean, the book's still selling. Mm. Uh, mm-hmm. She's one of the, the, the founding mothers of the neo-pagan movement. Uh, she was developing Reclaiming, mm-hmm. which is a tradition a uh, fairly politically radical pagan tradition. Mm-hmm. So a lot of stuff was beginning to emerge right around the end of the 70s. And this is so fascinating. This well, is such a great yeah, history yeah. to hear this um, and put it so together. Anyway, so anyway, so this young woman wanted a coming-of-age thing, and uh, by this time I was doing educational uh, writing educational materials for Far West Laboratory, so I had learned a lot about how to structure things. And I thought, well, hmm, womanhood. The the triple goddess is an interesting concept. Why don't I try doing something with that? Which makes everybody laugh who's been in the pagan movement because now it's such a basic concept that it's old-fashioned. Mm-hmm. But in 1978, this was really new and different. Mm-hmm. And so I wrote a ritual for her. I We invited all of the women from Marion's group. We did the ritual, and we got a real sense of powerful contact with with the goddess, with the female divinity. And working together with all women was also different. Mm-hmm. There was a whole different energy. And we all went, "Wow, this is this is cool. We've we've connected with something here. Let's keep doing this." So this eventually turned into a group, which called Dark Moon Circle, which is still going. Are you still part of that? Oh, yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. Um, I tend to stick with things. Mm, I can things. see. Uh, not everything, but most things. Uh, so this 78, 79, this was the beginning of the feminist explosion. Mm-hmm. So the, the development of Dark Moon Circle, the development of, of uh, feminist paganism, uh, was going right along with the whole feminist development in a lot of other areas. So it was an extremely exciting time to, to be working. And there, the, a number of groups were emerging at that point, and we all went to each other's workshops and learned from each other and then came back and taught the, the rest of the group. And so um, the, the, that whole period in the 80s was very exciting. And out of this ferment of ideas, uh, Marion first started doing some a feminist um, element in the Darkover books. 
And then she got the idea to tell, retell the Arthurian story from the female perspective. And, you know, I did all this in grad school. I didn't think there was anything you could do with the Arthurian story that hadn't already been done. But she found something. And Marion had a great gift for saying something that some group of people desperately needed to hear at just the right time. And uh, Judy Lynn Del Rey uh, was a brilliant editor who saw the potential and bought the book and knew how to publicize it. So the um, a yeah. lot of the energy in the College of Priestesses on Avalon and the, the atmosphere, a lot of that comes out of Dark Moon Circle, which Marion and I basically developed together. It sounds like a, a perfect storm of paganism, feminism, and publishing and yeah. fantasy innovation yeah. kind of coming together mm-hmm. in, in one novel. Yeah. So um, in 81, I finally, the, the novels that I had been working on, the Westria um, material, uh, I finally got it into a form that was publishable. Now, how long had you been working on creating Westria? Since 1971. So it, it was a 10-year journey, essentially. Yes, it was, before the first novel actually came out. So that's a, That since goes then, back to your sticking with things for a yeah, long time. Yeah. Right? So since then, um, that, that was when my writing career seriously began. Mm-hmm. Uh, so a lot of exciting things were happening all at once. And uh, what I did finally detached from was the SCA. Mm-hmm. After t- being on the board for 10 years and writing a lot of the basic organizational uh, st- structural material, I realized that it wasn't fair for me to try to make real people my creative medium. <laughs> they, they had ideas of their own, and innocently I thought that my fictional characters would be easier to manage. <laughs> that Did that prove to be the case? Sometimes, but not always. <laughs> So in in 76, um, I resigned from the board of the SCA and moved away in order to let everybody uh, do their thing and put all my energy into the writing. And so uh, anyway, things sort of evolved from there. Uh, I wrote the Westria books. um, I wrote two contemporary fantasies and uh, and then I started writing historical fantasies based on European legends and in all of these uh, there's a lot of pagan religion mm-hmm. so it. at that point the pay, your religion was was intimately woven into your fiction. yes absolutely uh, at one point I went in to, to see my editor I think I just turned in the sea star one of the Westria books and he said there's a lot of rituals in this book, but they work. And I thought, well, they ought to. I've done most of them. <laughs> I have to admit that they don't always work quite so perfectly in practice as they do in fiction, except, of course, if the plot requires the ritual to fail. <laughs> well, one of the things that uh, interests me about uh, involving your religion in your work is there's I think there's kind of two aspects of nonfiction because you are working with historical fantasy mm-hmm. and it's my feeling that a lot even if you are writing in a created world like Westria, a lot of that historical knowledge gets used because it's it yes. helps create good characters and good oh, yes. plots. Mm-hmm. But you have this kind of 
real world bound to history book stuff mm-hmm. that's that that's part of your fiction but also you have this spiritual aspect that mm-hmm. also comes from your real life mm-hmm. so i mean it's an interesting kind of uh, parallax i think because um you have the books the book learning that gets in there but also your real life of your real spiritual life to inform your fiction and i'd like you to talk about kind of this mixture what happened to you as a writer and also what happened to your spirituality as well well did you find that the I fiction think, was was leading i you? think partly because i was writing mm-hmm. about people doing it uh the cultural context of religion of the religion was i think has always been a, a basic part of my writing and my awareness of the cultural element increased as time went on. Uh, I'd been working in the, in the, the with the with Dark Moon Circle and the feminist approach to things. I'd also been working with Kabbalism, with with Western esoteric Kabbalism, based on Diane Fortune's work, and we'd done um, a, a Kabbalah study group, which worked very well. Yeah. But after after working with that for a time, I realized that was all very left brain and I needed to do right brain. I am going to get around to your question. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I, I thought, all right, let's do, um, let's try shamanism because uh, Michael Harner's book, The Way of the Shaman, had come out. And it was a, it, it is an extremely well put together introduction to certain shamanic techniques that have been that he um, syncretized or synthesized from his study of shamanic work all over the world and then kind of uh, sanitized it for use by white Americans. Mm-hmm. And, Did it need to be sanitized? Uh, yeah. Oh. <laughs> uh, shamanism, as, as it is practiced in, in on its native turf, would scare most uh, modern Americans silly, mm. and so it should. But there are some basic... Uh, techniques that can be used very successfully. And because by then I had an awful lot of experience leading rituals and doing path workings and so forth, I was able to take that and run with it. So in 1987, I got a chance to do one of Harner's actual workshops in person. I thought, fine, I'll see if I'm doing it right. And in the course of that workshop, I had an interesting encounter with the Norse god Odin, mm-hmm. quite unexpectedly. And a couple of years before, I'd written a book involving Norse mythology and done a fair amount of basic research and d- noted that there was a shamanistic tradition in the far north, mm. which I really was interested in because of... I felt that was something that I could maybe do without um, risking cultural misappropriation. Mm-hmm. So, essentially, the question was, if I would work with him, he would teach me how to, to do the northern stuff. Mm. So, that turned out to be a, a major spiritual relationship and ended up getting moving me gradually through the 90s uh, from being more eclectic in my paganism to being more primarily focused on the northern path. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, this is also true. And I had started with a uh, class on the runes, which is a really good way to to uh, move into the whole cultural mm-hmm. context. And uh, that book eventually w- was published by Weiser as taking up the runes. Yeah, talk about the the creation of this book. This is a, a an interesting aspect of, of nonfiction coming mm-hmm. out of your both your spiritual experiences and your your experience writing fantasy fiction. I think it couldn't help to have uh, it had to have been informed by I'm, that. I, I'm sure I write more fluently because of all of those years of writing novels, mm-hmm. and uh, which which does give me an advantage. I think in terms of style, but I've now written a number of nonfiction books and it's been interesting that, that they are getting in the pagan community. Uh, a lot of pagans were reading my novels, mm-hmm. but now I'm, I think, in the pagan community probably uh, better known for my nonfiction. Well, tell us a little bit about, assuming we know nothing about runes, <laughs> tell, tell us what they are and how they work, and how you discovered them. Um, I This is easy to talk about because we're just now starting another round of the rune class. Mm. Uh, and if you go to my website, www.rafnar.org, uh, there will be a, um, a way to find out about the runes in the class. But basically... Uh, the word rune gets used uh, in Scandinavia to mean a number of things which kind of translate as mystery. Mm-hmm. So uh, the Sami have a rune drum which doesn't have any runes on it. Mm-hmm. it. It's a magic drum. So one of the things the runes are is is spiritual mysteries. Mm-hmm. And they can be addressed intellectually. They can be addressed in in terms of what their history is. They can be addressed uh, with the senses, their sounds, their shapes. Uh, they have sounds names. from the drum. Well, not no. Forget the drum. Okay, that, that was misleading. <laughs> uh, they're they they're uh, in the outer realm. They are an alphabet. Mm-hmm. They're a, a northern alphabet, probably inspired by some of the Mediterranean alphabets, uh, with some additions and changes. But like the Hebrew alphabet, each um, rune stave has a name and a shape and a meaning. Mm-hmm. So uh, you can address them at, sen- by, through the senses, through their sound when you intone a rune and uh, visually and kinesthetically when you look at it and when you draw it. So you can involve the, the total person in dealing with each rune. And it's a meaning, uh, which you can also uh, absorb through intuition, through contemplation. So you can look at it in in a whole number of ways. And also, because each rune has a a name and a meaning, which is originally derived from the three rune poems that come down to us from the Viking Age, if you contemplate each rune and start following up on all the associations that go with it, it each one also acts as a doorway into some aspect of Norse culture. And here's where the cultural context element comes in again. Mm-hmm. And so 
uh, by the time you've worked your way through all 24 runes in the Elder Futhark, which is the one used in the earlier period on the continent, I'm trying to keep this <laughs> contained, um, you will have explored the whole context of Norse culture, so which is a real, me, me, makes it a really good starting point for getting into the religion. Mm, okay. Now, um, you're teaching a class in this? Mm-hmm. Tell us about uh, Hrafnar and and founding this. How did how did you come about this? This is uh, a Germanic mm-hmm. uh, version of, of the pagan religion. Right. Well, after I had this encounter with Odin, uh, I thought, okay, the only way I can think of to make sure I stick with this mm-hmm. is to start a class because then I'll have to come up with something every month. I can't drop it. And because this was the Bay Area which has just loads of talented, exciting people. All I had to do was say, hey, everybody, I'm going to do a rune class. Who's interested (laughs) to get 15 extremely talented people Mm -hmm. and uh, who stuck with it for the whole year? And by the time we'd done that, we all had this shared knowledge. Now, you use the word talented, and I want you to tell me what kind of talent, what you mean by that. Well, we had... um, three or four talented poets mm-hmm. and uh, we had a guy who was getting his doctorate in Scandinavian studies somebody else who was doing uh, Anglo-Saxon and uh, a number of people who had a background in medieval literature and associated areas so everybody in the class brought something to it and so we, I would get I would meditate and get my intuitions, um, hopefully inspired by Odin, and read all the history that I could find. And other people would bring in their insights. And uh, we developed a a combined approach that involved studying and contemplating and doing real-world activities that related to each rune and then finishing it all off with a ritual. Mm -hmm. And if it one aspect didn't get you, one of the others would. So anybody who went through the whole thing addressing all of those ways of, of learning would come out knowing the runes. Absolutely. So you had a people from different disciplines to give a bunch yes. of different perspectives. Yeah. And it was uh, a classic case of the sum being greater than the whole of the mm-hmm. parts mm-hmm. for everybody. Yeah. So at the end of, of, of this, here we all were with all of this background. Then I said... I got back to my original goal, which had been, all right, um, who wants to help me develop a way of doing the Norse oracular practice, which is one of the practices included in uh, Norse witchcraft, which is known as Seidh, mm-hmm. S-E-I-D-H, if anybody wants to look it up. Uh, and th- there was material in the Eddas and the Sagas that we could work from, and I put together a procedure, and it worked. And so we worked on that for a year and then started doing it for the pagan community. Then everybody was still enthusiastic, so we gradually mutated into a regular, ongoing uh, heathen group. The terminology, you can call it Norse pagan, you can call it the northern tradition, you can call it also true or you can call it heathenry. The, generally what is coming to be the best-known term is heathenry. 
Mm-hmm. Heathen is the Germanic equivalent of pagan, the people out on the heath who are still doing the old religion. Now, one of the things that interests me is that these all these old religions have been incorporated by everything that has come afterwards, and it kind of seeps into every kind of religion that there is. So I'm wondering how many people that you get who come from more modern religions but recognize the strains that the actually the origins of their beliefs in in the, the rituals and practices that you guys that's i think mostly for scholars mm-hmm. although the religion you grew up in does tend to um color what you expect a religion to be mm-hmm. and one of the things that we're all having to do is to learn how to be pagan mm-hmm to learn how, to, and in particular, uh, these days there are several branches of paganism, mm-hmm. and the groups, the traditions descended from Wicca uh, is one major group, and that's what most people are familiar with. Mm-hmm. And then we're, we're also seeing the Reconstruction religions uh, more recently, and th- these are the people who are trying to reconstruct Germanic paganism or Greek paganism, or Celtic paganism, or Roman, or Egyptian, or whatever. So, people who are working within a particular cultural context. And I think we are going to have to go through that, trying to do it, figure out how our ancestors did it, and what their worldview. See, this comes right back down around to the, the broken sword. It's so interesting. And trying to understand how they thought is the only way to figure out what the elements of the religion are and then eventually I think we'll come around and modernize a bit more mm-hmm. but now we're going through uh, doing our homework part. Now there aren't many heaths left out there for, for <laughs> no, you to be, some. be heathen on. Um, uh, well, talk about, you talked about this it modernization. It means on the heath but, but in fact it's a very much household family based mm. path mm-hmm. and the three parts of it uh, are the gods which is where most people start especially in the US the ancestors who we're learning how to relate to mm-hmm. and the spirits of the land and in Europe the situation is a little bit different because you have people who are still living where their ancestors lived mm-hmm. and still relating to the land spirits uh, in in a similar way, we move around all the time. We leave our ancestors behind in cemeteries on the other side of the country. We have to develop new ways of relating to them and of relating to the land spirits where we're living now. Well, talk about that kind. Of, that's your that's the process of modernization. Then, so yeah. I, I, I'd like you to to talk about um, mobile paganism. I guess is, is, <laughs> it's it. When you're connecting to a land spirit, how how can you do that if you like live in a suburb? Is that possible? Well, um, one of the way places you can look for insight is Shinto. Mm-hmm. Okay, Shinto is an example of a folk religion that never got interrupted. Mm. And what the what in Shinto what they mean by the kami is what we mean in Germanic religion by a white, W-I-G-H-T. Mm-hmm. This is the spirit of the land? 
the, the whites are spirits. Mm-hmm. Anything that has an identity has a spirit, has a white. Mm-hmm. And you, when you look at uh, Scandinavian folklore, the, the barn has a white and the waterfall has a white and, and that particular patch of woodland has a white and the boat has a white and the car probably has a white and so forth. So the, it's a kind of an animism. Mm-hmm. And the more you learn to be aware of and relate to the spiritual dimension of things it changes how you relate to the world around you and and then the other part is dealing with our ancestors mm-hmm. and and uh, both our immediate ancestors and our ancestors from far back and in in our group we talk about ancestors of the flesh and spirit because uh, genetics is not the the total story Mm. We yes, we want to be to connect to, and be proud of, and relate to all of our ans- physical ancestors, uh, but we are also the result of the people to whom we are drawn, and whose uh, the heroes, in one sense or another, whose work has inspired us. We are that the product of their um, of that heritage too. Knowledge and education and spiritual mm-hmm. teachings so, are so our ancestors as well. Political then. figures, uh, his, historical figures, uh, writers, teachers. Um, this is so, so interesting, Diana. So, and, and then, of course, the third part, which is where most people tend to start, is with the gods mm-hmm. the goddesses. And one of the reasons that I ended up focusing so strongly on heathenry is that as a pantheon, the Germanic deities seem to be the most alive, well, and eager to party. Mm. Uh, individual deities from other traditions are very awake and uh, pushy. But all of the, the northern gods, maybe it's because we're speaking English, mm-hmm. uh, we have a linguistic connection to that culture. But uh, almost any of them, if you start paying attention to them, they'll start paying attention to you. That's an interesting concept. <laughs> yeah, having it's, a god it's, pay attention to you can be scary. Actually, I'm guessing that this has happened to you. So, uh, yeah, talk about what happens when a god pays attention to you, and it proves to be uh, not what you expected. Which I would guess would be most of the time. Well, I'd had some pretty powerful experiences uh, before I ran into Odin, but. Uh, in in that particular encounter in in the workshop uh, was much more intense than anything I had undergone, and I was just glad that I hadn't had that experience earlier mm-hmm. because I felt I needed the fifteen years or so of of practice to have some clue as to what I was getting into. Of course, I didn't, but I thought I did. It was something approaching an informed decision, and. Uh, for a lot of people in not everybody the, one nice thing about heathenry is that it's okay to relate in a number of different ways mm-hmm. it's not so dogmatic then as the standard no you, you know three three heathens and nine opinions <laughs> uh, but uh it is fairly common in North America and to some extent Britain at least to develop strong personal relationships with deities 
and a lot of people will have a, a patron or matron deity that they work with closely. By closely, is this something that happens it, on it's a, a daily it's basis? A, or For a lot of people, yes. It's a, a, a personal relationship, mm-hmm. which becomes as vivid as any other relationship. This is so interesting because we often hear about people uh, uh, in, in the United States. We hear a lot of people talking about a personal relationship with God or with Jesus Christ. I think that may be why it happens that way in this country, mm-hmm. because that's part of our spiritual model Mm, mm -hmm. and if you move around it is easier to the gods will move with you and a a a guy from iceland came to visit a number of years ago and actually he interviewed me for an icelandic magazine and the first thing he said was how can you worship the norse gods in california and i said the same way that the norwegians who emigrated to iceland did (laughs) they brought them with them and then met the local land spirits. Gods are very portable. Yes, well, the, the Norse gods do seem to be willing to move around. Mm-hmm. And uh, so uh, it is an inner relationship which is um, extremely rewarding and powerful. Uh, and it's not exclusive. There, there are some people who just work with one. But uh, my experience has been that Odin is only too happy to have me work with other deities as well because through me they can connect. So he doesn't even mind if I work with deities outside the Pantheon. I think he's trying to make alliances. (laughs) Now, if I'm out there listening and I find this all as fascinating as I happen to find this and I want to learn more about becoming a pagan... It's not, how do I go about it? I mean, it's it's not like there's a, a pagan church on the corner that I can go to with well, Sunday you services. you might be surprised. Uh, for paganism in general, actually that's difficult because there's so much literature out there now mm-hmm. that I'm not even sure what the most accessible uh, things are if you... If, well, if we look at that, we could look at your website, Rafnar. Tell us, we've for, got just for heathenry. F- mm-hmm. However, that's a question I've had to answer more often. I can give you. Mm-hmm. Um, I wrote a book called Essential Asatru, mm-hmm. precisely for people who are trying to figure out what is this all about. And it's also useful. Six. It's also useful for people who want a book to give to their relatives to explain what they're doing. Mm-hmm. Uh, after you, people who have gone through that and want more should. Um, get a book called Our Troth, Volume 1 and Volume 2, available on Amazon, which is more, it's two hefty volumes, uh, which include more information about the gods and heathenry than you will ever find in two volumes anywhere else. Uh, They can also go to the uh, website of thetroth.org. Uh, which is the organization that I've been working with since 92. This is so fascinating. What do you think the future of the pagan religion is? It seems like, to my mind, it's got an interesting growth pattern because it's not out there. Are are you guys out there seeking members? I mean, We don't proselytize, mm -hmm. but pagans in general and heathens have become much more open to uh, at least getting the information out there. Uh, Many cities have pagan pride parades. 
uh, were pagan festivals, uh, at which all of the pagan groups will have tables and literature and so forth. So um, I think almost anywhere, if you uh, Googled Pagan Pride Parade or Pagan Pride, you would probably come up with some information. That would probably be the easiest way. Uh, or just Googling Pagan and the name of your town, you might be surprised what would come up. Boy, that's just so great. We are everywhere. <laughs> Diana Paxson uh, is the author of, most recently, The Sword of Avalon. She's also the author of Hallowed Isle, The Book of the Sword and the Spear, books one and two, and the nonfiction works Taking Up the Runes, A Complete Guide to Using Runes in Spells, Rituals, Divination, and Magic, and Essential Ossetru, Walking the Path of Norse uh, Paganism. You can find her website at... Uh, www.rafnar.org also transportation and seeing for the people which I'm just about to turn in to uh, Weiser which is on oracular work thank you very much for joining me Diana it's been a delight to have you You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. <laughs>